and we'll go swiftly through them and leave questions to the end, if that's okay with you. Um, and first on our agenda, we have Greg Vatuleto, um, who joins us from the, he's a course director and lecturer at the Vienna Museum, but also speaks specifically um, to the topics that he discusses with his students at the Royal College of Arts in London. Thank you very much. Thanks, Maya. Good morning. Come on in. We're going to, if you want to, <laughs> otherwise, wrong room. Um, this is very much a kind of a broad brush of background uh, material I've been gathering uh, to support uh, a book I've been writing uh, for reaction on, uh, on car design. And I'm interested in the, the aggressive and defensive characteristics of the design of the cars that you and I use you know, every day, whether we go in taxi cabs or competitive sports cars or uh, our own private uh, runarounds or ambulances or ultimately the hearse. So um, it covers, covers a, a bit of a field. But I wanted to go back and I, I thought, well, it's, it's great war year, so that's where I will uh, start with this. And I, I had been looking at uh, how during the great war the, the dreadnoughts and submarines, uh, torpedoes, new torpedoes, they brought a new level of destruction, as we've been seeing uh, this morning, uh, to the war at sea. And we had airplanes and airships making their first appearances uh, for reconnaissance and introducing new battle tactics, uh, the dogfight, aerial bombardment. Can you hear me all right in the back, by the way? Okay? Good. Um, and in land battles, uh, the automobile was playing its uh, role for the first time and was taking on new forms that were adapted to the nature of that conflict, which was you know, developing rapidly uh, during the war. Between 1914 and 1918, I would say the motorized ambulance and the tank um, were finally recognized as essential elements of modern warfare. One, you could say, ostensibly in the service of compassion and rescue, although there are lots of arguments surrounding that, and the other, the principal land-based instrument of violence and destruction alongside the new guns that we've been hearing about and the armaments that were being, that were being employed. So this paper is meant to look at um, the significance of the motor vehicle during the First World War. And it, I'm attempting to, to, to show the effects that they were having on the lives of those who commanded them and those who suffered or benefited uh, from, their, from their use in the prosecution of that conflict and in cleaning up the messes that it left behind. So these different specific vehicles were, were doing uh, different kinds of jobs. Um, I'll be looking at these new uh, products of the technology of the time uh, as instruments of order and chaos, loosely, just to try to group them uh, in the conditions of that early 20th century ground war. Now, I think, yes. Um, the Great War really uh, began in a car. And, um, so, and there it is. <laughs> For those of you who are car nerds, uh, it's a 1910 Graf and Stift double Phaeton, if that means anything uh, to you. And it was the site of this episode of violence that initiated that chain of political events that uh, led to the war. And we have shown in the photograph uh, the heir to the Habsburg throne, uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie in the back seat. Um, ready for that last fatal drive through Sarajevo during uh, their diplomatic visit to Serbia, just before the assassin pulled out his gun and uh, killed them both, thus sparking the conflict. But 
World War One, of course, was uh, was a war of, of horses, and uh, anybody who's looked at war horse will, you know, be familiar with the way that's been dramatized and celebrated, in a sense, uh, commemorated, I should say, uh, in sculpture and in film and so forth, um, in, in the last uh, few few years. Now, horses soon became ineffective, in a sense, in relation to batteries of machine guns and artillery. Um, and particularly after the spread of the trenches, I mean, it, it couldn't go, as it were, uh, across the scarred landscape of uh, the, Western, the Western Front. But they continued to provide the pulling power that was necessary to move the men and the supplies and the artillery wherever trains didn't go. Uh, and that was the case also when the Second World War began in 1939. So we're not looking at a moment of sudden change, but one of gradual evolution. Um, in fact, steam locomotives pulled the bulk of troops and supplies and arms throughout both world wars. Um, and specialized trains like this one at the top, which is an Austrian armored uh, machine that was photographed in Galicia in 1915, were used to transport heavy armaments when, at a time when road vehicles and road surfaces in particular were far too underdeveloped to allow for the haulage of this kind of tonnage um, across land. It was iron rails that made it all, uh, that made it all possible. Um, they also carried the horses on which cavalrymen would then ride from rail stations uh, to the front. Um, but it wasn't only specialized devices like this extraordinary thing. I mean, I just think that that is an amazing object. Um, regular passenger uh, and goods trains needed no modifications of any kind uh, to play their roles in uh, transportation during the war. So they got the war off to a very quick start in the autumn of 1914. And here we see some naive and excited uh, British troops on a familiar timetabled slam door British train, a passenger train, bound for the unpredictability and the confusion of the Western Front in the autumn of 1914. It looks so innocent and they all seem so happy not knowing where they're going. Um, now, backtracking, retreating into a little bit into the terrain that's more familiar to me, which is the world of pre-First pre World War art, two of those great themes in the modernist art of the, uh, the early part of the war uh, were speed and violence as we know. Uh, the enthusiasm for speed, I would say, was elegantly captured in uh, that photograph by Jacques-Henri Lartigue that most of you will be familiar with, well-known photo of a racing car uh, taking part in the French Grand Prix in, in 1911, and really dramatizing the, the power of the motor car in these early years and the way, it, the way it was perceived rather than the way it actually looked, these hard, rectilinear, upright uh, machines. Um, but more darkly, uh, that combination of mechanical speed with ultraviolence uh, was celebrated by the Italian futurists and particularly by F.T. Marinetti, who's seen here at the top left in his powerful 1908 Fiat touring car, and this was before the days of the Cinquecento when Fiat was, you know, a maker of big, heavy, fast machinery. Um, in the Futurist Manifesto, he described a drunken late-night drive in that car, and I'm, I'm pretty sure all of you will know this passage, but I'll read it anyway. He wrote, um, on we raced, hurling watchdogs against doorsteps, curling them under our burning tires like collars under a flat iron. That's it. 
it's a heavy image. Uh, death domesticated met me at every turn. So he's, he's loving this horror. And that night, Marinetti and his car ended up in a ditch, famously, an event that was claimed to be captured in this, in this picture uh, on, the, on the right. This is a photo I came across very recently and never saw before, and I seriously doubt the authenticity of it. I, that, that doesn't square with Marinetti's description of having the car pulled out of the ditch and then driving off. This looks like a total wreck to me. So if anybody knows about this photograph and you'd care to enlighten me, I'd be, I'd be happy, to, happy to hear about it, whether it's, whether it's correct or not. Um, in that same text of uh, February 1909, Marinetti also linked speed with the glorification of war. So we get him bringing these two ideas together absolutely uh, and uh, forthrightly. He called it the world's only hygiene. And I think, well, after what we've seen this morning, that comes into a, a quite different uh, focus. Now, Marinetti was not unique in seeing his car as an instrument of violence and disorder. Um, early elite sporting motorists were, they were widely per perceived as arrogant uh, sociopathic speed demons. Uh, and that illustration from Puck, a humor magazine uh, on, the, uh, on the lower right, I think illustrates it uh, uh, quite well. Uh, and it, Toad of Toad Hall, you can think of so many examples of uh, of this characterization of the motorist as someone totally out of control, usually drunk. Craig, it's not that clear. Is it possible to turn off some of the lights? Um, I don't know. Does anyone know how to do that? We can, oh, we can certainly do that. Thanks, Bridget. Um, is that, is that looking better? Yeah, I like that. That's, that's nice for me too. Good. Thank you very much. Um, that, that illustration, well, that takes us into the civilian realm, but, uh, but uh, in 19, 1899, um, the French illustrator known as Villemard predicted automobiles based on the first primitive horseless carriages, adapted to the purposes of war as he saw it coming in the year 2000. So he's looking, he's looking ahead at the, at the war car as a, a new specialized type of vehicle before there were hardly any vehicles at all on the, on, on the road. But already, even at that moment, such a, such a vehicle had been built and demonstrated here in, in England. In 1898, it was uh, by the, uh, the Anglo-German engineer Frederick Sims, who we see just, just here, um, at the handlebars, because it's basically a quadricycle, it's a lot like a, more like a, a, a motorbike than it is like a, our idea of a, a modern motor car. He, he, this, Sims was an interesting <coughs> character. He promoted the words petrol, and motor car in British usage, and he also founded the Royal Automobile Club, so an elite society for sporting upper-class guys, men mainly, uh, with their fast, uh, fast competitive cars. And that that vehicle that he's riding on was called his Motor Scout, and it, it was the first armed petrol-powered vehicle that I know to have existed, uh, to have been built at that time. It was a Didion Bouton quadricycle on which Sims mounted a Maxim machine gun and provided that iron plate, the shield, to protect the driver. This is, you know, small potatoes, I think, for someone who really doesn't want to get killed in, uh, in conflict. Uh, Sims then went on in 1902 to build the, um, the so-called motor war car that you see in the top right, which, uh, which I guess 
can be considered the first real armored car, and is seen here at the Crystal Palace in 1902. You know, I'm, I'm cautious about anything attributed to be the first of anything, because you always find out there was one two months earlier. But it is very early, 1902, and it's, it's, a, it's a proper carapace for the vehicle to attempt to protect uh, the, 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 uh, the crew from uh, gunfire. The design development of real war cars was actually quite swift, but production and implementation were slow for a variety of reasons, not all of which I've managed to explore yet, but I know some of them. Um, their first real use, of course, was 1914. There was no testing ground for these, uh, for these vehicles in use. Um, and that, of course, was very quickly limited by the rapid spread of the <coughs> trench network on the Western Front. I mean, the cars couldn't go. Uh, the one on the lower left, you'll see, has these angled uh, containers along its sides. And those are for rails that could be slung across the trenches so the car could then, they're portable bridges basically for the automobile. They didn't work for long because the trench network was simply too dense, the ground too uneven, uh, and everything was too disorderly for them to work. So um, they, they, while they demonstrated their value up to a point, they were not really effective uh, weapons. The French uh, Charon Girardon Voigt armored car of 1902 was the earliest one I could find that had a mounted gun properly placed on the vehicle. And that, that was uh, only armored by that, that tin can that it's sitting in. It wasn't any serious protection for the head, um, or the, for the drivers for that matter. But it was a prototype that led to the construction of this one uh, below it. Uh, a CGV car of 1906, of which eight were built. And these were widely publicized uh, in magazines around the world. So it was a well-known car, and it was lauded as being highly maneuverable, quite defensive, and a serious piece of military kit for the, for the, for the first time. Paul Daimler, who was the son of uh, Gottlieb Daimler, the German engineer, uh, designed the, this 1904 uh, Austro-Daimler fighting machine for the joint German and Austrian arm armies, of which he was an officer. Uh, and, uh, you know, this constitutes another even more advanced prototype, although it's earlier than, than this one, the, the, uh, the um, CGV. Um, but presented to cavalry officers, the old guard really didn't like it. They, didn't, they stalled its development, in fact. It was said because they feared you know, the old uh, quip, such machines would frighten the cavalry horses. But more likely, they didn't want to spend their budgets on an instrument that didn't conform to their custom tactics. And there was no tactical system yet devised for motorized uh, warfare, ground warfare. So the, the task was, uh, was left to automobile enthusiasts, such as the American uh, Commander Royal Davidson, who produced this. Um, he taught at a military academy in the United States where he uh, created with his cadets a fleet of eight military uh, uh, vehicles, which they drove in convoy to the San Francisco uh, Pan American Exhibition in 1915 to promote their potential, to give them a public uh, foothold and a picture. Um, the column of cars that were built by Cadillac, uh, they included a reconnaissance vehicle, a radio communications vehicles, a cooking car, ambulance equipped with an x-ray machine, an officer's staff car, and interestingly, an anti-aircraft vehicle, one of the earliest ones I know to have been, uh, to have been built. 
And so Davidson's contribution, and there were others at the same time, I'm sure, who were doing much like his, his, his work, was to develop um, specialized tactical vehicles that would operate together as a fighting unit. And this was something that was going on in the submarine corps, for example, at the same time. New tactics were being developed for these new these new kinds of machines. So this is not happening as a standalone operation. It's echoing developments in, in uh, uh, machine warfare and other fields. Um, of those internal combustion uh, engine um, engine vehicles debuting during the Great War, the tank was the perfect single-purpose battle wagon for that ravaged landscape of northern Europe. Um, and used, and this was the, the point that was interesting to me, used to, to essentially to break up the stasis of trench warfare. Uh, it was, in that sense, a dedicated instrument of chaos. It was meant to stir the pot to some extent did. The British Mark IV tank that was introduced in 1917, so we're getting quite late on in the war, um, was the, the most produced tank of the war that I know of. About 1,220 units were, were built, and it carried a crew of eight, a lot of people to fit into that little tin can, and uh, it could travel over flat ground at four miles an hour, which is brisk walking speed. You know, this is not, uh, not, not a racing car. Um, at the right, we see one under attack by a German flamethrower, which was a kind of assault that it was intended to withstand, but I doubt it did very successfully. Um, motoring in the second decade of the 20th century was still seen as an elite activity. Uh, and so the cars that were used in the war were typically the fastest, yeah, thank you, and uh, most reliable makes. And they were reserved for use by the highest military brass and by specialized motor units who enjoyed excellent billets, you know, in Paris, for example, and uh, even uh, couture uniforms. I was interested to find out that uh, the, you know, one of the top French couturiers of the time, Jean Paquin, designed the, um, the units for the Belgian Anti-Aircraft Automobile Corps in you know, a full black leather rig. This was special, special treatment. So the automobilists uh, were high-level uh, combatants. When T.E. Lawrence was assigned to lead a combined force of British and Arabian nationalist guerrillas in an offensive against the Turkish army, he requested from uh, the army his superiors nine Rolls Royces. He wasn't going for anything, you know, uh, cheap and nasty. Uh, driving one of those cars himself, and he declared it his most valuable instrument in carrying out his duties. And on the lower left, you see a, a custom-built uh, Mercedes staff car that was captured by the French in 1918. And I think this shows uh, a hand-built, streamlined body that, this, that demonstrates a, a, a high concern for appearance as well as effectiveness in, 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 the, in the field. And at the top, well, go right to the top of the rank, this is a photograph of Tsar Nicholas II's 1915 Packard 12-cylinder touring car with a custom semi-armored body built in Detroit by Fisher. So it found its way. But the interesting thing about that one is that it sports the, one of the earliest, uh, well, it was designed for this car, <coughs> a so-called Kegress half-track which enables this car to travel over unmade roads. There were hardly any made roads in Russia at the time. And this one is actually fitted with skis on the front, turning it into an auto sled. So he could cover all bases. Didn't help, did it? <laughs> Still caught him. 
Uh, getting ordinary troops to the front from the railheads became the job of public transport vehicles by and large, and prominent among them was the London General Omnibus Company's Type B bus, which was the earliest proper London bus, which you can see here transporting troops to the field of battle. Now, London buses were hurried into use in 1914 to get people out there quickly, and some were st went to Ypres, still in their red paintwork sporting uh, West End theater posters and Bovril ads. You know, this is an incongruous rolling funfair of a site on the grim death of the, of the Western Front, but they were, they were very soon boarded over uh, to some, uh, somewhat protect their uh, occupants, uh, or were adapted for purposes of communication, such as this one, which has pigeon coop on top for carrier pigeons to help communicate on the battlefield. The French, um, too, used ordinary cars to get troops to the, to the front. They lacked sufficient dedicated transport vehicles and conscripted more than 600 Paris taxis to ferry thousands of soldiers into battle in defense of Paris in 1914. And this rather stately Renault-type AG1 taxi, which was designed by Louis Renault himself in 1905, was the first motorized taxi to be produced in France in large numbers. And it became a heroic symbol of national resolve as the so-called Taxis de la Mon. And you can see there's a commemorative stamp of 1964 at the top left to prove it. Now, the interaction between war and medicine, well, Dr. Gatling, right, who invented the Gatling gun, was one of the first. He, you know, very naive idea that his Gatling gun would end the bloodshed of the American Civil War. Clearly didn't do that, nor did the Maxim gun that followed. But we see here an image of order and purity and calm in the interior of this specially adapted ambulance train that's typical of those used to treat uh, wounded soldiers and take them to hospitals. And these themselves served as mobile hospitals. They could carry up to 400 uh, combatants, and they were equipped for emergency surgery and staffed by doctors and pharmacists and nurses, as well as the usual uh, crane true, uh, train crew and armed guards. But other vehicles also intended to bring order uh, to the war. The ambulance uh, had special significance for their crews, and, 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 and these crews, the drivers in particular, formed intense bonds with them. One British driver warned, you may reflect on an ambulancier's me mechanical knowledge, his appearance, morals, religion, and politics, but if you be wise, reflect not on his car. To him, regardless of its vintage or imperfections, it's not only a good car, it is the best car. So there was a really, you know, we talk about involvement with our cars today, but this was serious involvement. Many of the early ambulances reflected the wagon maker's skill, and you can see that in this Fiat on the right. And it was at this time that wagon makers, <laughs> I'll almost make it, uh, wagon makers were learning about how to design bodies for motor vehicles, and they were transferring skills from horse-drawn vehicles into this, the motor car, and it was a, a time of great stress for them, as well as for drivers like the young Ernest Hemingway, who we see here on the left in the, at the wheel of his Fiat in Italy. Um, I'm gonna, I've only got about two slides left, I think, but I'm going to run through them as quickly as I can. This, uh, I would say, is the most uh, ubiquitous of all of the automobiles that were adapted for use during the First World War. It's the, the, the Ford Model T, which was shipped in, th in its thousands to Europe, flat-packed and assembled 
uh, by carriage builders, carrossiers in France, in Italy, in Britain. And uh, among the, the people who drove them was uh, the American writer Gertrude Stein and her partner, Osby Toklas, who you see here uh, with theirs photographed in, in France in uh, about 1918. <coughs> um, women were having, many of them, their first encounters, those who were not upper-class sporting women who were racing Napiers or other high-class cars were seen for the first time driving and working as mechanics like these. And I think that these are interesting promotional photographs communicating the way women were intended to be seen as part of the war effort. I would only point to the strappy high heels of the girl in the top left to show that you know perhaps these aren't exactly accurate representations of women of the motor pool uh, during the First World War. Uh, these last two uh, pictures I just have to show you because they're so incredible. This was a desperate act to bring four bicycles together, push bikes strapped together with an ambulance between them as a way of getting wounded soldiers off the battlefield I thought was quite an extreme measure and an interesting one. As ropey as it may be, it was probably preferable to the lurching of the horse that would be the only other way to get them off uh, the field and to a, to a hospital. Now, later, of course, I mean, I'm concluding now, <laughs> you'll be happy to know. Um, while there were delicate new surgical techniques and medical instruments were invented and improved in that crucible of uh, warfare, without the speed and the other advantages of all these motorized vehicles and even the push bike, those advances would have been much less effective uh, in dealing with the carnage. Eventually, of course, aircraft overshadowed wheels, particularly in post-World War II jungle fights such as Korea and uh, Vietnam, both for combat and for cleanup, and I'm trying to show both here. The significant example is the helicopter that provided that essential fast transport to mobile army surgical hospitals, the MASH units. Uh, but they also became in increasingly effective in making the mess. And this ferocious looking uh, uh, vehicle on the, on the right is a, a Russian Mi-35 attack helicopter seen flying. And I think anybody who saw that would want to back off a little bit. Um, anyway, I'm sorry that I've had to uh, rush through this. I probably put, tried to put too much in. But I am done now. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.